Well, many of you know, and if you don't, let me tell you, uh, a month ago on uh, January 26, our lead, our lead pastor resigned uh, to focus his energy outside of the local church. Uh, his name is Dan Debill, and uh, we just wanted to continue to communicate because there's questions that you have, and they're right questions about um, things that are taking place and how are we moving forward. And I have a dear friend, she's a pastor of uh, kids ministry. She's on her management team. Her, her name is Michelle. Give her a round of applause. Thank you. Well, I, I love Michelle uh, for lots of reasons, but particularly you, you have a way of just making things simple and accessible. And uh, so we've, we've got some questions that I think would be helpful if you could help us answer. Awesome. Um, so one of them is, um, just in light of the transition, uh, we're thinking about just leadership in general. Tell us how Heartland is currently led. Awesome. Well, it's great to be with you guys. How fun. I, um, we have five different elder groups, elder teams. And there are 29 elders. Six of us are on staff at Heartland, like Jay and I. Um, and 20, what was 23 of them? I'm doing the math in my head. 23 of them are non-staff folks that serve. And these are men and women with spiritual, emotional maturity that we are just so grateful for their time. But I want to put a slide up that kind of shows you um, our leadership structure. Management team, six uh, full-time staff members, Jay and I, Seth Davidson, Tom Bronner, who is on um, a planned sabbatical, uh, Steve Fisher, am I missing anybody? Craig oh, Cheney. yes, Craig Cheney, who is, who is our point person, our executive pastor, uh, and our appointment person for the management team. And we do the day-to-day decision-making that we oversee, each oversee an area of Heartland, and um, we get to co-discern together about how God is leading us. And it is um, a joy to do this work together and co-discern where God's leading us. And um, our board of directors are our financial and legal folks. These fo- think about folks who love budgets. Um, I, met, I was talking to a wife of one of them yesterday. He balances his checkbook to the penny. Okay, those are the kind of people that are our board of directors. I thought that's what you're supposed to do, Michelle. I do not do that. Okay, okay. I do not do that. Um, and I used to be an accountant, and I don't do that. But um, they love Excel spreadsheets. They do any legal stuff. They're like forecasting. They tell us this is a safe and good stewardship of money. We're grateful for those guys. Our pastoral elders, you probably have met them because they're a part of our prayer team down in front after... After the service, they serve communion. They are our shepherds, you guys. They are so faithful to be praying for you, for Heartland, for any needs. They care for people. They do funerals. They go to the hospitals. They do weddings. I mean, these folks are prayer warriors, and they just really care about discipling and spiritual formation. Our advisory team are a group of people who are thinking big picture vision of Heartland and leadership of Heartland. And they give wisdom and counsel to our lead pastor and to our management team. And the last team is our overseers. Those folks are not a part of our Heartland group, but they're friends of Heartland. They're pastors and ministry leaders in the community. And when we need an outside voice from time to time, we use those guys uh, for wise counsel. So that is our leadership structure, which we've been living with for probably 15 years. 
18 years. That's great. It's helpful just to understand what happens behind the scenes that's unseen from Sunday to Sunday. Yep. So, so in light of us moving forward together as a, as a church, as a congregation, how is it that Heartland will be led? Tell us a little bit about that. Awesome. Right now, we really um, have felt led that God is calling us to develop a task force called the Leadership Structure Task Force, LSTF, if we want an abbreviation for we that. We probably won't use that. We probably won't. Um, it's a way that helped me remember the okay, name of it. Then let's use okay. that. Um, so we've got the elders. We're going to take a group of those, one, some from each of those teams, and pull them together and really ask the question, does our current leadership structure with a lead pastor, management team, and our elder board, does that really fit the vision and strategy that God is calling us to? And so we are in the beginning process of that. We will update you as, they, as we learn and gather information about the LSTF. Okay, the okay. LSTF. Yes. Great. We'll have to get that in our heads. <laughs> Should we say it together? No, we're not going to do that. Okay. <laughs> so, Michelle, tell us, uh, tell us about Sundays. You know, who's going to be teaching going forward? What does that look like? That's great. Since August, we have had a group of 25 men and women who are a part of our Sunday services team. Everything you guys experience in here, people are brainstorming. These are creative people, worship leaders, production people, people who care about activation and prayer and teachers that are coming together to create an experience that we get to experience on Sunday where we encounter God together. We have a team of teachers um, that you've seen since August that will be teaching. And we love the idea that God is using different people in different life stages with get different gifts to bring the scripture alive and really relevant to where we are. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, we've got some leadership breadth, as you see, with our structure. We've got some leadership depth with the folks that we have. But I think the greatest encouragement for our hearts, but I think also for us as the people of Christ, is that Jesus is the head of the church. And so we can trust Jesus for his church, for our lives, for our leadership, for the direction that he's offering us. Uh, he's given us a real clear identity as a church, and he's given us a really clear direction as a church. And so we'll continue to communicate those things because they're important to know, how do I find my place in that? And, and, and how do I continue to serve? So we want to just invite Seth up. He's going to speak here in a moment. Let's give him a great round of applause. He's going to take us into, the, into uh, Luke today. And Michelle, I know you wanted to pray for us, pray for Seth. So why don't we join together in prayer? Yeah. Heavenly Father, we are just so grateful that you are doing a new thing in us. Um, that was a word that Dan brought on January 26th, that you were doing a new thing. And uh, God, as a church, we're just so grateful for the last 34 years, how you've provided, you've protected us, you've taken us on this adventure together in this place that we call home. And so in this transition, God, we just, we need you. We need you to guide us and direct us. I pray that we would be men and women who are following close after you. And uh, we are just so grateful for the people of Heartland, how they give, how they give of their time and of their money and their prayers. And um, God, we just ask today, as Seth brings a word to us, we just pray that you'd give us ears to hear your voice 
I love what Nick said, that didn't each of us want one word, that we needed one word in our dark place today? Um, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I do amen. want to say one more thing. If you have questions, please talk to management team um, on a Sunday. Email us. If you have questions, concerns, we would love to talk to you. And we need your prayers. Continue to pray as we transition into this new season where God's creating a new thing. We're just really grateful for your presence and for your prayers. Now it's your turn. Thanks, Michelle. Shep. I call him Shep. Awesome. Thank you, too. Great to be together with you. It was just over a week ago that I was sitting in the Houston airport on the return trip from Guatemala. If you were here last week, you have heard that there are different places in the world in addition to Kansas City that's unique in our hearts. Kenya and Scotland and India and Guatemala. And so I had the privilege of getting to go on mission through faith and practice to this amazing country, to this community, these beautiful people in Guatemala and served as the pastor of a medical mission trip where we got to bring hope and healing in Jesus' name to people who are medically underserved. And if you've ever been on any type of experience in another culture like this, uh, things stand out to you. When you're able to step out of your comfort zone, it really alters your perspective. Anyone had an experience like this? You know, we, we tend to go and we want to give and serve and we do that and yet we come back having received more. It's amazing how it works. And anytime I've talked to anyone who's had any similar experience, what I hear is always the same. When I encounter the people, folks say, what stands out is they have so little, yet they have so much of what matters most. And when we come back into our society, the reflection is we have, comparatively speaking, so much and sometimes so little of what matters most. Are, are you tracking with me? Yeah, yeah. And so I'm sitting there in Houston Airport wondering why that's the case. And I'm thinking back to this experience that I've had and that I'm getting ready to come home to the quote-unquote real world. And I'm thinking about the people that I got to encounter I had three goals this particular trip as the pastor of this team of about 50. The first was to pray for patients, and what I mean is the patients who were being served. But sometimes when things weren't going well in the OR, I had to pray for the patients of the doctors as well. But just got to pray and see God show up in powerful ways. I got to serve as the spiritual director for this team. It was a, and is a faith-based medical mission, but about half of the folks who go and serve on the team are not followers of Jesus. So to get to represent who our king is as we serve those whom Jesus loves is, is just an amazing experience. But my third and maybe most important goal of the time was to not become a patient myself. <laughs> because I have been known to faint at the sight of blood. And there are these five operating rooms with total knee surgeries. And, but by God's grace, I overcame it all. But I was asking that question as I thought about people like Mauricio, uh, who this new knee that he was given enables him to go out to people around him and be and bring good news like he couldn't before. And I think about Nelson who came uh, to the mission hoping to have a wheelchair 
because he had had a surgery that had gone wrong and, and you could literally see like a screw sticking out of his kneecap, not out of the flesh, but like you could see it. He couldn't even walk. He expected to leave in a wheelchair and he was able to walk out on a new knee. And I thought about people like Augustine who I met, a 17-year-old boy who's like this miracle child who at the age of, I believe it was 12, suffered a stray gunshot wound and at the scene was left for dead. Someone found him and they took him to the hospital and it seemed like hope was lost. And again, at the National Hospital, he was left for dead, but somehow he made it. And while he's struggled physically since then, including coming up to this trip, his faith has just flourished He's come to faith in Jesus, his, his father and his mother and his family. He's gotten involved with the church, and now he's one of the music leaders, plays guitar. And so he showed up, and just the experience, these people who seemingly have so little and yet have so much. And so I'm reading Luke as I'm waiting, and it hits me like a ton of bricks. The difference between what they experience in that culture and ours is they don't seem to measure life by what they have. There's this qualitatively different because in our culture, I'd submit, we have a way of measuring the quality of our lives by what we have or by what we own or by what we've built with our two hands. Does that make sense? We tend to measure the quality of our lives um, by the things we have, by the number of zeros attached to our salary, by the, the letters that come before or after our names. We tend to measure our lives by the neighborhoods we live in or, or the stuff that we have. And, and we come by it honestly, I suppose. We live in a culture that's individualistic and capitalistic. We reap the fruits of manifest destiny in the new world and based upon our strong Protestant work ethic, we live in America, the richest society in the history of the world, for better or for worse. And that has created, among other things, this sense that we have bought into the lie that the quality of our lives is measured by what we have and by what we own. Are you tracking and I think this affects all of us. I was uh, struck by this today as I woke up early to come here to preach at church a sermon on generosity and materialism and the like, and, and I pulled my Baldwin jeans out of the, the drawer, and I rifled through my closet and picked one of about a dozen J. Crew button-down shirts, and then I grabbed my Patagonia Better Sweater jacket, you know, the gray one, as opposed to the black or blue or brown and I got in my Acura TL and I drove here ready to preach and, and I stopped by Starbucks on the way because it's going to be a big day. I thought I deserved it. Is this not a microcosm of how we perceive things in our culture? For you, it may not be the clothes in your closet or what the car in your driveway. It may be the technology that you pursue or the regular things in your Amazon shopping list or that next vacation you're about to take. But we have bought into the lie that our lives, the quality of our lives are measured by what we have or own or possess. Would you agree with that? 
And so we're at the midway point in the gospel of Luke as we've been trekking through the life of Jesus. And in many ways, this is a high point of his ministry. Crowds are coming by the thousands. Opposition is also rising because Jesus' message and the kingdom that he's bringing is threatening the status quo. And during one of these kind of public crowd experiences, some guy yells from the back, hey, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Which I don't know about you, but that's a very legitimate question. Hey, we have an estate. I'm an heir. My brother isn't giving that to us. In America, we understand the legitimacy of this question. We have wills and dependencies, and we've worked hard. These are rightfully our sorts of things. But Jesus seems taken aback by the question. There's a premise that he finds deeply troubling, and he sees this sin that lurks deep within. And so it would behoove us as all people, uh, of all people, to understand what Jesus says here. It's found in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Beware. Be on your guard about greed. Jesus sniffs it out. I wish we could sniff it out so easily. Greed can be defined in Wikipedia as an inordinate or insatiable longing for material gain, be it food or money or status or power. WordNet that comes from Princeton University describes greed as an excessive desire to acquire or possess more than one needs or deserves. These are not very generous traits, are they? But Jesus uses the Greek word pleonexia, which denotes even darker intentions. Biblical commentator calls pleonexia, he says, describes it as a ruthless self-seeking and an arrogant assumption that others and things exist for one's own benefit. William Barclay, New Testament scholar, calls pleonexia or greed and a cursed love of having, which will pursue its own interests with complete disregard for the rights of others and even for the considerations of common humanity. Jesus calls this greed. He says, beware. And then he challenges us. He says, life is not measured by what you own. And he proceeds to tell a parable of what's called the rich fool. And just, I'm amazed by his master storytelling and how the story from nearly 2,000 years ago just pierces us today. Said a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend... You have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And in the parable, God says to him, You fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you've worked for? And then Jesus gets to the point 
of the parable. It says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. See, the folks I encountered in Guatemala didn't have many uh, of the blessings and, and the positive aspects that come with the money and possessions that we have. But they did have the advantage. Their lives weren't measured by what they owned. They had a qualitative difference in life. And then when I came back into our country, it's just so different, isn't it? Because with great wealth and power and all that comes with it, also comes great pressure and great stress and for many great anxiety, for some great despair. At a three to one level, folks experience intense anxiety here in the first world more so than in a place like Guatemala. Millions of people suffer. Many of our wealthy suffer because of this. Found this um, fascinating uh, article called I'm Rich and That Makes Me Anxious. Found in the New York Times. And I want you, as you listen to the words of this author, to think about what that scripture passage, the insight Jesus had. And maybe if you're able to use this as a mirror, if not to your life, at least to the culture in which we live in. Carrie Hannon says it like this. The psychology of wealth is naughty. On the surface, being wealthy can make people believe they have more control over their lives, but it can also uh, control them emotionally. Wealth frequently comes with a bundle of expectations, anxiety and pressure to make smart money decisions, for example, about how it is managed, spent, passed on to future generations, or used to create a legacy. There's a degree of fear. People are afraid of the money, how it might corrupt them or make them insensitive to other people's plights. They worry about their kids having so much money thrown at them that they'll be, not be motivated to work for money and have a meaningful life. Writer Megan Day says it like this, Many multimillionaires are found to harbor intense feelings of guilt, self-doubt, and above all, anxiety, that their savings will be stolen or squandered due to miscalculations or misfortunes. One example, at age 72, Thomas Gallagher is a multimillionaire. Even so, he admits, I still don't feel to some extent, or I still feel to some extent, that I don't have enough money. Emotionally, I don't come from money. I got very lucky on Wall Street. I've been dealing with a myriad of psychological issues since I retired. I have more money than I ever imagined, but I still worry. Do I have enough? Do I have enough? See, money can buy a lot of things, but it can't buy the things that matter most. Well, you may be standing here or sitting there. I'm standing here. You're sitting there. You may be thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not a rich man or woman. But we who live in America and here in Johnson County may have a skewed perspective, at least internationally, of the wealth that we may have. How many of you have ever heard of this website called Global Rich List? Anyone? 
It's fascinating. What it does is that you can input your uh, gross earnings or net earnings, and then it compares and contrasts to the net earnings across our planet. And it gives a way of giving perspective in terms of the material things that we have in terms of money as opposed to the rest of the world. So I went into ministry for the money. Okay, that's, that's not actually true. And while I am blessed and compensated well for what I do, I didn't expect myself to be that wealthy. So I went in and I put in my net income and what I found is, we can show this, I'm in the top 0.12% of earners on earth. That's not one out of a hundred. That's about one out of a thousand on earth. That's just me, a pastor here in Johnson County. What about you? I'd, I'd challenge you to go there just to give a sense of perspective to help out if you make a salary of $31,500 or more, you are in the top 1% on earth. Now, I understand this can be a little skewed. I mean, it's not apples to apples, cost of living, especially internationally. I get that. But can it, we at least step back and say, comparatively speaking, living in the richest nation on earth, do we more resemble the rich man in the story or the poor that Jesus spent so much of his time giving his life and mission and ministry to? Can we entertain that? And even if you're still not convinced, which is okay, the reality is greed affects us all, the haves and the have-nots. All you have to do is buy into the lie that the quality of life is measured by what you have and own and can make for yourself. Those who are wealthy struggle with a sense of ruthless self-seeking, or they can, a crippling fear of loss, excessive preoccupation with more. But some of us who aren't wealthy spend just as much time in a preoccupation of self, not because of what we have, but by what we don't. A fear of loss, all of those things. I think Jesus would say to all of us, beware of greed. Why? Because life is not measured by what we own. So what's the antidote for this? Well, fortunately, Jesus turns to his disciples, and if we overhear what he says, he can share the antidote for greed and how we might have that different quality of life that we're after. Because of time, I'm not going to read this passage in full, but it is in our Luke readings for the week. It's found in Luke chapter 12 as Jesus talks about money and possessions. And he says at least five times in that, do not worry. Don't worry. You don't have to worry. Don't worry. Why? He'll unpack three things. I'd encourage you to go back and look at it yourself. But the first reason he says not to worry, he says we can be grateful be grateful. Why? Because it is God himself who provides for you. Jesus gives an object lesson. Look out in, into, the, into the, the creation itself. Look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Our heavenly father provides for them. And you know what? He loves you so much more. So be grateful. 
We have a heavenly Father who will provide for your needs. We are just wealthy enough, almost all of us in this culture, that we don't actually need God to show up very often. So we're afraid that he won't. In Guatemala, they have to have God show up. And he does. And their attitude is great joy and thankfulness. If you want to combat greed or a sense of anxiety that you may be feeling, start here by being grateful. Be grateful, Jesus will say. The next thing he says in this passage is to seek first. It's so easy in our lives and in our culture since we measure life by our stuff that we have and by our ability to meet our own needs. We have the illusion of thinking that we're in control. When Jesus says there is great freedom, you don't have to be in control. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need. So we can be grateful. And that lets us seek first, get aside or beyond ourselves. And we can trust that he'll give us all we need. And then when we're free from that worry, that sense of we have to provide for ourselves, that lets us do the third thing that combats greed in ourselves and in our culture. And it's simply this. It lets us give generously. When you're free from worry, you can give freely to those in need. So don't be afraid, Jesus says, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to those in need. Who's the giver in this passage? It's God. God is the giver of all things. God sees fit to give out of his abundance for us. God is the giver. It gives him great happiness to give you the kingdom that is so much better than all the stuff or money or anything we could have. He is pleased and happy to give us the kingdom. So, we can sell our possessions and give to those in need. Well, we talk a lot here at Heartland and in the church, rightfully so, about generosity, about giving, about giving of our time and of our talent and of our treasure. Out of the things God has given us, we give those things freely away. And oftentimes we talk about giving in terms of the tithe. The tithe means 10%. And it's a biblical idea of giving the first 10% that we have to the local community that provides the spiritual needs. It's in the Bible, it's there everywhere. In a few weeks, we'll actually talk about what this might look like and mean at Heartland for our community. But to some degree, the tithe is somewhat arbitrary. It can be easy for us to check the box of that. Jesus had strong words to say to the most religious people of his day because they technically did the right things by giving a a tenth, but they miss God's heart. In Luke 11, he says, what sorrow awaits you Pharisees? For you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What are those? The justice, the mercy of God for our fellow human beings and our worship 
of our heavenly, heavenly Father who gives graciously all we need. So why is the tithe important? Simply put, it's important because it's the tipping point. If our giving is more like we tip from our overflow, we still are in control, we still choose. But God has a way, he knows our heart. And if we're willing to offer 10% to him, he knows that we'll offer it all. The tithe is the tipping point. The tithe is what breaks the back of greed in our culture, and the tithe is what sets us free. So the antidote for greed personally and in our culture, it's simply this, three things. Be grateful. Be grateful for what we have, and that lets us cope with the things we don't have. Seek first. Seek first his kingdom, and he'll give us everything we need. And then when we're free to be in that place, it says give generously. Give to those in need. So here's the deal. Our lives are not measured by what we have or by what we own, by what we've built up, but they are measured by what we store up. They're measured by what we store up for him. That person, that fool who stored up earthly wealth but wasn't rich towards God, there were calamitous results. But for those who would follow Jesus in the way of his kingdom, where he says, give to those who need and this will store up treasure for you in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and the thief cannot steal. See, grace is opposed to earning salvation, but the way the kingdom works is we're working for the next life. There is treasure that is stored up. Scriptures talk about rewards and crowns. We can store up and there's no way we can outgive God. And as we are storing up, the amazing thing is that which is true in heaven crashes into earth. Jesus concludes his passage saying, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And if our heart is on the treasure in heaven as we've sought first Jesus and his righteousness, the most joyful, incredible people you will ever meet are the most generous their treasures there and that fills up their hearts. Your life is not measured by what you own, but it will be measured by what you store up. We have a good, loving, and gracious God who has given us everything. So be grateful, seek first, and give generously as a result. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your life that you showed us the way to live and Thank you for the generosity of your death that you laid it all out so that we could have the riches of eternal life. Thank you that eternal life has the ability to start now if we'll just tap into it. You're a good, loving, and generous God who meets all of our needs. And there are some of my friends here who legitimately are having trouble with their needs being met. I pray that you would be a provider you would come, that you would meet their needs. There are some of us that are struggling to be grateful, perhaps for very good reasons. 
Lord, will you calibrate our perspective, giving us your spirit? Lord, you have given so generously to each and every one of us. You've done so freely. Will you encourage us and challenge us individually and collectively to give generously back out of worship for you, out of hearts that are open to meet the needs of our fellow men and women around us, whether it's in Guatemala or Kenya or Scotland or Kansas City, across the street, wherever we are. You've given us everything. Will you allow us to store up and then be filled up with more and more of you and all the treasure you have to offer? In Jesus' name, amen.